you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, as we uh, draw our Christmas sermon series to its uh, appropriate finale. Uh, We'll be reading the entirety of that chapter, so Matthew uh, chapter 2, beginning in uh, verse 1. It is very normal for me, as we sing together each Sunday, Uh, to pick up a phrase uh, within our singing, which, remember, is our confession. It is our saying to God that which he deserves to hear from those whom he has saved. And in that great old Christmas hymn, chorus, carol, whatever you want to refer to it as, that refrain, repeat the sounding joy. It is our privilege uh, each and every Sunday, it is our privilege each and every day to repeat, to confess again and again and again the one who is our joy, the one in whom we find our joy has come, and he has come for us to save us his people, from our sins. And for that, we always give thanks. There is a a cliche that goes something like this, that familiarity breeds contempt. Now, cliches hang around and they become cliches because they, in a very simple and concise manner, sometimes uh, confess, make a statement regarding that which is true. And so, many times, the things that we are most familiar with, we treat as most common. We neglect to give to it its due attention. And so many times, as we come again and again and again to these great realities represented in Christmas, this this great mystery that the eternal God who has existed as the glorious one for all of eternity, has humbled himself and taken upon himself our humanity, and not just our humanity, taken upon himself our sins, so that we may indeed be forgiven. And so, let us never be guilty that although we're familiar and we have heard the story of the birth of our Savior time and time again. Let us never neglect the glory that is represented in that simple and sublime, but again, most holy time when our God became a man and he became a man for us, for our salvation. So let's read this morning, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. 
and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your grace, for the testimony to the reality of the incarnation of your Son. Father, we confess that we don't fully understand how God became man and that he remains a man as our Savior, our great high priest, the one who has indeed atoned for our sin by his once and for all sacrifice. And we look forward. We, we confess that we anticipate with great joy the day of his return. May we live in light of that which he accomplished 2,000 years ago. May we live in the appreciation, the enjoyment of what he is doing among us even in this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
We find here in this chapter, Matthew once again developing his apologetic, his defense, his assertion with proofs that Jesus is the Christ, that he is uh, the promised one. And so he gives us the peculiar setting, uh, the time and the place of his birth, establishing it within the reign of this one known as Herod. He tells us about uh, this uh, uh, travel, uh, this journey by the wise men to come and see Jesus. Then about Herod's scheme to destroy this one who would be king of the Jews. But yet these wise men do accomplish their purpose in that they do come to Jesus and they worship him. And then Joseph is warned to go to Egypt to escape the murderous rage of this one Herod. And then after Herod's death, Joseph brings his family back to that little town where Jesus would grow up, the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And so that's kind of the the thumbnail sketch of what's going on here. And I want to take and break it down this morning into three parts. The first being that Matthew is going to show us by way of the fact that Jesus perfectly fulfills the Old Testament Scriptures, Scriptures that he will cite for us at least four times in this text, that again, answering the question, who is this King of glory? He is the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, as we looked at the genealogies, we came to understand, we saw that Jesus is the one that is fulfilling, he is the fulfillment of the promise made initially to Abraham and then extended uh, particularly to David that there would be a one, that one who would be the king. And then Matthew specifically cites that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy given through Isaiah regarding one born to a virgin and he would be called Emmanuel, translation, God with us. And so in this chapter, we're going to see four places that Matthew particularly cites that says that Jesus is the fulfillment of these. Now, please be sure that these are not the only scriptures that the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfills. By some counts, there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that speak to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, He fulfills every one of them perfectly. So again, proving beyond the shadow of any doubt that Jesus is the Christ. The first thing that Matthew cites for us there in verse 6 is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy made by Micah that the king, the promised one, would be born in Bethlehem, the, the city of David, the traditional homeland of Israel's greatest king, namely David himself, and that he would be born, and and we're going to see something here. We're going to see it all next year as we preach through uh, the Old Testament. And the term, here's your big word for the day, if you want to write it down, but we're going to see something called the light motif. We're going to see some images and some symbols, and we're going to see some characters. We're going to see some themes, and they're constantly going to be repeated. And when they're repeated, You know, there's something up within the Bible, within the Scriptures, that's being pointed to. And so what do we see? Jesus born within the reign of a hostile king. Have we not seen 
God raise up one to lead his people within the regime or under the regime of a hostile king. And because of the hostility of this king, Joseph is going to be told to take his family to Egypt, which is the second scripture that Matthew is going to cite there in verses 13 and 15, that because of this flight to Egypt, Joseph is warned in a dream because of Herod's murderous attempt that he should take the family down there. And Egypt throughout Scripture, it functions in a number of different ways. It's known as the, the, the land of the people's oppression, but it's also known as a place where God's people are protected. And so, very unusual thing. It gets tweaked a number of different ways, but we see it over and over again. And next week, we'll see it in the life of Joseph as one who is protected in the land of Egypt. So, Joseph takes his son Jesus to, to Egypt, and here Matthew cites the prophecy written in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So, we know the first time what? God calls the nation out of Egypt, the exodus. But here, once again, Jesus being the ultimate and final fulfillment of this prophecy, he is called to return to the region of Galilee, to the nation of Israel in coming out of Egypt. Then a third prophecy that is cited here in verses 16 uh, through 18 is related to Herod's jealous and murderous rampage. Here, Matthew cites Jeremiah 31, 15. Jeremiah is speaking to the exiles in the midst of their grief because of the exile. And many mothers in the land of Judah in the days of the exile lost their children. Their children were slaughtered. Their children were murdered in, in the uh, conflicts that led up to this exile. And so, Matthew takes Jeremiah's prophecy and that speaks of the grief of the mothers in the days of Jeremiah, in the days of the exile, in 586 B.C., roughly in that time frame, and he brings it forward and says that the mothers who at the time of the birth of Jesus are living in Bethlehem because of the murderous rage of Herod, they are going to be weeping. And they're going to be mourning over the slaughter of their baby. But just as the mothers of the exile grieved their children, the context of Jeremiah's letter to them was what? God hadn't forsaken you. There's a promise of return. There is hope even in the midst of your grief. And it's the same message to the mothers of Bethlehem. That this, this is a terrible thing and it's a difficult time. And you are grieving but your grief isn't ultimate and your grief isn't final. There is hope in the one, in the son, in the child that has been born in Bethlehem. Then there's a third prophecy. And this very interesting to me as I've, I've kind of teased on it all, all week. But you find there uh, in verse 23, Joseph returns and he goes back to what is essentially his hometown. And that is where Jesus is raised, presumably spending uh, his uh, adolescent, teenage, uh, early adult years he spends in this little village of Nazareth. And Matthew concludes that because of this uh, 
residency, because he is a, becomes a native, so to speak, of Nazareth, that the word of the prophets is fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I think some very quickly think in terms of what Matthew is referring to is that Jesus becomes a Nazarite, um, as mentioned in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. We know of John the Baptist as being a Nazarite and living a ascetic, separate, holy life. Now, it is possible to say that while there was a form of being set apart that was practiced among the Nazarites, you could, might could say that even though Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber, that although he didn't uh, uh, submit himself to the rites of the Nazarites, he was the most holy of all men, that he was the most separate of all men without those external vows. The problem with that is there's no Old Testament text that speaks of Jesus as a Nazarite. And here's what I think is going on in that prophecy is that the reference, there's no specific text. I think it's a general summary that the Messiah, that Jesus, would be a man of lowly reputation. You remember the words of Nathaniel recorded in the Gospel of Luke when told that Jesus is from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth. In our way of talking, maybe, Nazareth was a place associated with backwoods, backwards type of people. Again, maybe in the way we would refer to it, Nazareth is where the rednecks came from, okay? And so, that gives you kind of a point of, of, of context. He, Jesus was a, a rough-hewn man that had little in the way of sophistication. And as Isaiah referred to him, there was nothing about his appearance that attracted anyone to him. And so I think the reference here is the fulfillment of the general consensus of all of the prophets that he would not be esteemed by the world in his incarnation, that he would be a roughneck. He would be a redneck like the people of Nazareth. And so, the king of glory fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Well, who is this king of glory? He is the one that the enemies of God will always oppose. He is the one that the seed of the serpent will always oppose. And we see it once again here in Herod being absolutely enraged that there is one that could possibly be a threat, could be a contender to this throne. Now, Herod was the most hated of rulers over the nation of Israel. He was half Jew and half of the descendants of Esau and Idiomene, and the Jews hated him. And he was cruel, he was vicious, he was immoral. He was much like uh, the typical despots of the uh, ancient world. He's remembered uh, for murdering more than one wife, several sons, 
and assorted other family members. He was a despicable person. And so what Matthew tells us about him is certainly in keeping with what we know of his character. And so it it seems to me, again, uh, a fulfillment of of what uh, the psalmist wrote in asking this question, why do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed? And we see it. They see this, this vicious despot raging, being enraged. If there could be one that could possibly supplant him, that that could possibly remove him from the throne. And so we see this murderous scheme that this despicable man tells the wise men who come to inquire uh, as to the place of the birth of this promised one that uh, he would like to go. I want to do what you're doing. I want to come and worship uh, this child, this, this king that uh, is the fulfillment of these prophecies. While all along he had in mind, I've got to destroy him. And so the wise men leave and they don't return to Herod. And when Herod discovers that he has been tricked, he determines the best way to rid himself of what he perceives as a threat to his regime. The best thing he can do is destroy all of the babies there within the city or the village of Bethlehem. Now, how cold, how corrupt, how immoral, and how vicious can that be? And so, again, Matthew wants us to see that that Jesus is the one who is opposed. As Simeon said upon Jesus' birth and upon him being presented at the temple, he looks at his mother Mary and said, this, this one is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul. And so here it begins that those that will not worship him, they will oppose him, even oppose him violently. And so... The third issue, and maybe the most intriguing issue of chapter 2, is we once again, who is this king of glory? He is the one in whom the nations are blessed. The one who rules the city that has no need of sun or moon because its light is the lamb. And by his light, the nations will walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I think among a number of things that we can say about the wise men and their visit uh, to the child uh, there that they foreshadow the great reality that this one born there in Bethlehem, this one that was placed in a stable, shall one day rule the earth, that all kings will bow their knee to him. And so, we can ask the question, and I think it's a good one, and, and, and you know, there's been volume after volume written about these wise men. And the first question we might ask is, who were they? Who were these very strange men that we're told traveled from the east? Now, 
there are some legends that give them names. Some of, you may have ran across some of them in your reading over the years. I don't know. Uh, I'm doubtful that this is actually their names, but they are uh, at least remembered in kind of legendary status as Caspar, uh, Melchior, and Belthazar. And that the claim is that their relics uh, were first of all taken to Constantinople, and then they are now enshrined in the shrine of the three kings in the city of Cologne, Germany, okay? And so, again, you take that for what it is, extra-biblical, legendary, uh, who, who knows? But we simply don't know much about them. Where were they from? From the east. Well, I think the most likely places is they were from Babylon or possibly Persia. Some would even say more related to the nature of the gifts that they are from uh, Arabia. But at the end of the day, we have to confess what? We don't know. We don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a terrible thing for a preacher to have to confess, isn't it? But we just simply don't know. We don't, we don't know who they were. We don't know where uh, they were uh, from. And what was the star <laughs> that guided them? Uh, now, there's been many suggestions of various types of natural phenomenons, the, um, different alignments of various planets and stars and so forth and so on. I'm going to give you my best suggestion, that it was a unique manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God that guided them from where they were to where the child was. There's, there's no real known astrological phenomenon that can account for directing them to that specific place at that specific time. And so that's what it seems uh, to me. And maybe the bigger question than what kind of light was it? What kind of star was it? How did they figure out they should follow it? And how did they relate it to the birth of one who would be the king of the Jews? Now, we're aware probably of a prophecy found in the book of Numbers by the pagan prophet Balaam. And he wrote, or he speaks of, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so, again, I'm speculating a bit, but it seems quite likely that there was a tradition, there was information that had been developed and cultivated through the life and the ministry of the exiles, those deported out of Jerusalem, out of Judah in 586 B.C. If you look at the book of Daniel, we find him in association with the wise men of Babylon. And guess what? He demonstrated that because of his God, he was far wiser than any of them. And my guess is that these supposedly learned men came to value the wisdom of Daniel and possibly some of the other exiles who came to reside in Babylon during the captivity, during that 70 years that they were there. And I don't know how much information they had. I don't know how much it was related to this particular prophecy, nor how much it may have been related to kind of a timetable that Daniel lays out in Daniel 9. 
But I'm quite sure that among other things, Daniel made sure that they understand that the one who is to come is the stone that is hewn without the hands of men. And this stone shall come, and it shall crush all of the kingdoms of this world. That it shall come, and again, it, it shall be the kingdom that shall rule and reign forever. And so this had to be intriguing to these wise men as they began to sort out the details. And maybe the, maybe the calendar of, of Daniel chapter 9 with all of this uh, 7 and uh, uh, what is it, uh, 7 and uh, 70 and all, all of this business that Daniel uh, recounts to us, the 62 and the 7 and the 70 uh, weeks of years. Maybe they were counting from the time that Cyrus said the Jews could go home, or maybe it's one of the other dates where the temple is rededicated or where uh, Nehemiah goes back and complete the building. Maybe that time at least was passing, and they were watching, and they were waiting, and they had this information. They said, the time has got to be drawing close that this one prophesied, prophesied by these ancient Jewish prophets that time is near. We need to be looking. We need to be waiting. We need to be discerning. So whatever it was, they came. And they came to the right place at the right time. So we asked the question, well, what was their purpose? Were they convinced that he would one day rule the world and maybe the best thing to do is uh, get his attention there at his birth? Was it just simply international diplomacy? Uh, was it something that they had understood about the unique nature of this king and uh, there, there was a religious component to it? It's hard to know. It's hard to know. Well, did they come when, when we, we see that they came and worshiped him? Does it mean they acknowledged his deity or is it just an acknowledgement that indeed this is a great king? Well, we don't know exactly. Like I say, it's a very enigmatic story, but it's a great story. And it has endured, and it should endure. One of the interesting things that has happened in the last few years, and I guess all the high-minded liberals are too busy with other high-minded liberal things this year, but I haven't heard anybody griping and complaining about uh, manger scenes uh, on public properties. Now, maybe they've already burned them all up or knocked them down or griped enough that, you know, they're not put up anymore. But you remember what I said in my opening, that familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes we go by and, you know, oh, that's, that's cute. Well, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad that's out there. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad, you know, it's very pretty and, it's, you know, it makes me mindful. But maybe sometimes the pagans have more on the ball in thinking about the realities represented by the three wise men and all the other aspects of Christ's birth and that it is a reminder to them of what? That there is a king of kings and there is a lord of lords and there is a day of accounting coming. And that all of those scenes, that's why they hate Merry Christmas. All of those things remind them of that reality. And sometimes we just get into this very glib and very, very flip, you know, it's just a busy time of year and, you know, we do our thing. But again, be reminded that is the fulfillment of God's great promise to send his son into our world. And he is the king who 
was promised, and he is the king who is now ruling and reigning. He is the king who has died and rose again for us, his people. And he is the king that one day will return for us. He is, he is our king. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to us. And so, who is the king of glory? Well, he is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to David. He's the legitimate heir through Joseph, we've seen. He is the king that is right now, right, right now as we sit here today, he is ruling and reigning. He is the uniquely conceived son of God. This once and for all, one time accomplishment of God taking on our humanity. That means he's singularly qualified as the sole mediator between God and man. He is the ultimate and effective sacrifice for our sins. And thankfully, unlike that which contrasts to him and opposed him, unlike Herod and all that came before him and all that came after him, Jesus Christ is the perfectly just and righteous king. He is the one who has saved his people from our sins. He is God with us. He is the fulfillment of all of God's prophecies and promises. He is the king to whom every knee will bow. And everyone who doesn't bow the knee lives in opposition to this king. That is proclaimed in every Christmas scene. Again, that's why the world hates Merry Christmas. Those who persist in their rebellion will come under his judgment. We either see and enter his kingdom through the new birth, or we will live and die as his enemies. This Jesus is the king of glory. He is the one to whom all glory and honor is due. So in and through this king of glory, the curse is reversed. It has been reversed through his effective, efficient, unique sacrifice. It is being reversed by his interceding and ruling over us. It will be reversed fully and finally in his return as Lord and Lords and King of Kings. That which Adam has brought upon us, the cursed ground, the pain and childbearing, the reality of mortality, the tragedy of separation from God, the anguish of the loss of our first home, the search for our new home, the fracturing, fracturing of human relationship. This has been reversed by God's grace through the promised serpent-crushing seed who is the fulfillment of God's promises, even to Adam, of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent and certainly the promises to Abraham and David. The king of glory is our king. It is his birth that we celebrate. We rejoice that our king has come. He has conquered, and he is conquering, and he will conquer. He will return for us one day as the victorious Lord of lords and king of kings. May we live and may we celebrate as citizens of the kingdom that cannot be shaken, because our sovereign is resurrected, is conquering, and is returning. He is the ruling king who, by his divine, eternal, and royal decree, has founded a kingdom in which by him, and for him, 
and through him we live as citizens of that great kingdom. And we are satisfied with and in his glory forever. As we go to the Lord's table, be reminded that there is a Lord's table because there was a first Christmas and there was a first Christmas so that there indeed is a Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great truth that is represented in this season. We thank you for the privilege of celebrating you as our king, as the one born in Bethlehem, fulfilling your promises to your people, your promise to have a people among whom you would dwell. We thank you that you have left us with this command to do this in remembrance of you. And God, may we remember uh, that you have come, and you have come for the singular purpose of dying on the cross to save us, your people, from our sins. May we eat and drink, fully understanding and fully confessing uh, the greatness of the reality of you are our God and you are our King. 